Now that they have a choice, will California's public employees stay in their unions? California's wheat black market ramps up. And the court listens to discussions about a California bullet stamping law. That's what's coming up in this week's episode of California Streaming. You're listening to the California Streaming Podcast with Bobby, Jonathan, and Louie. We're just three conservative friends trying to provide some counterbalance in one of the most liberal states in the union. So let's hop on our magic choo-choo train to nowhere and talk some California politics. What's up, guys? We're back. Hey, one of the most liberal cities, uh, states in the union. We are officially the most, aren't we? What about New York? No, no, no. We take the cake, and especially since we're going to go even further into the uh, into the abyss when we get Gavin Newsom as our governor. Oh, well, that's a given, but yeah. I didn't know we were already the most liberal. <laughs> I think we're pretty close, if anything. I mean, we, we've got to have like some kind of trophy by now or something like that, right? We're definitely on, on the podium somewhere, without question. Yeah, we're taking a medal home. All right, first on the docket, guys. Uh, now that we have a choice, will California teachers and cops stay in their unions? The Supreme Court's ruling uh, the other week that government workers can't be forced to pay union fees for collective bargaining and other activities may hurt dem- Democrats in the upcoming midterms. Although some experts suggest it could have galvanizing impact for union members to get out the vote. Thoughts? This is a, this is a big sta- one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm staring at you guys because I don't know if I should go for it first or if I should uh, wait to respond. Well, okay. So as we all know, here in this state and in most places in general, the way it goes is unions have a, a, a politician that they prefer. They donate to his or her campaign generously that politician becomes elected, that elected official thus uh, is in charge of uh, negotiating contracts with union or non-union workers, which in turn become big contracts. They turn into salaries for unions officials, and then eventually they, uh, they turn it around and hire more politicians again. So... Where's the downside other than we need people we need people who really, really understand that we have a bad cycle going around. So this decision, the Janus decision as it's now become known as, is really great for us in the long run. It 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 stops the cycle of bad politics. Is that what you think? <laughs> At least I hope so. You know, it's kind of I'm a member of a public union, uh, of a pretty big public union. I think I get the point because I agree with the fact that unions typically support liberal issues. And when you're a member of the union and you're paying your, your, uh, you know, your fees to the union and your dues, you don't really want to support that measure. So this lets people who want to opt out of the union to not have to pay the admin fee that they're typically charged. But that doesn't mean they're no longer getting the benefits of the union. And I think that's the weird part because typically the fee is, well, you get to benefit from the collective bargaining agreement, the grievance process, and all those items. But 
now you just you get all that, but you don't have to pay. And I, I actually I agree with you, Louis. It, it's the part of it that, as Bobby mentioned, right? There's the whole aspects of, um, or, or he alluded to of public employee unions, et cetera, and there uh, should should that be a factor, et cetera. But it is you want to pay for something and get value, and so they're still getting the value without laying the price on the table. And so it's like, like, like if you want to be completely fair about it, then you should just say, okay, well you don't have to pay into the union, but now you've got to negotiate your own wage. Totally. Personally. I, I totally agree with you. We just, the, the element you're bringing up to me is the one aspect of this where it, good, great, but it's like a halfway kind of fix or a solution. It, it's having your cake and eating it too. I, I, I get it. I wish my money didn't go support right. liberal causes. I totally get it. Public union. I'm on. I'm an executive board member. I totally understand that part of it. But then you can't get the fringe benefits and not want to pay into any of it because that does go to all, that money goes to other things besides political action. And I think that's an important part too. I'm glad you brought that up because hopefully you can help answer this. I went on a little bit of a. I don't think it's a tangent because it it directly applies what I at least thought when I started researching this, it directly applies to fees, dues, et cetera. How does it work, right? We we hear the headlines all the time about the union gave X dollars or so much money to liberal politicians versus uh, conservative politicians. But I'm online and I'm trying to find an answer to this. And I'm seeing things like, well, it's super PACs or it's this or that. Are these sorts of dues... Is there a way to, that they are funneled to directly supporting politicians running in campaigns? Because depending on where you read uh, now, about this on the internet, no, they're not, or yes, they absolutely are. And, and admittedly, I'm a little confused. I don't want to just attach to one well, of these. Well, you're essentially telling the unions that you expect lower numbers all, all across the board. And this is true. Understood. So less... Less people in the union, less union money, Got less it. less money to donate to whatever cause that you might have. Right, but t- to answer John's question, so I'm actually the treasurer for my union. Here we go. So I'm the money guy. Okay. okay? Uh, the dues are comprised of a bunch of different things, and I think it's important to distinguish between the locals at the local level, and then you know their affiliates of a greater union. So we're a local of a larger union. Now, we pay a per capita fee per head of like 13 bucks to the main international union. They do with it as whatever they want, right? So they get, they're the ones that get behind big candidates. The locals are the ones who get behind the local candidates. Now, you have to, especially in California and with the IRS, we have a special political action committee, a PAC fund. And money has got to be segregated from the general operating budget into a special pack. And then that is what you use for political action. You mean you have to opt in to donating to that pack with your dues or, or a portion of the dues that, well, at least as of when this passed before. Yeah. That. If you've, if you've ever seen like when election times comes around, you'll see, you'll get one of those little flyers hanging on your door says these candidates are represent are voted and approved by firefighters or police officers right. or what have you. Right. But the money for political action must come out of a very separate segregated account for political action. 
the rest of the members dues go to like, you know, in our case, it's snacks, it's a pantry fund. I, I'm part of a firefighter union. So it's, it's like, got it. It's, it's the spices and the pantry and the peanut butter and our TV and stuff like that comes out of the union money. Uh, I don't think people understand. They think the city pays for those things, but it's, it's the union that pays for things like TV, silverware, all that stuff. So then, okay, to get specific, then you, you, what you're suggesting is uh, we'll use around number ten dollars, right, of your dues. You're saying not even a penny of that likely will end up in direct support of Gavin Newsom, for example. It, it could, right, because a, a chunk of your dues you opt into giving to the political action. You don't have a choice on that. It depends. Uh-huh. Your local can determine, you know, however their bylaws are laid out. They can say, you know, here's uh, when you sign up for the union, when you're a new employee, here's a checkoff list of things you want to opt into. That could be fundraiser activities. That might be, hey, everyone contribute an extra five bucks because we're going to be doing this fundraiser. That could be so-and-so's retiring and the local throws the retirement party. Here's a fund for an additional 10 bucks for that. Some locals might just say, hey, you, you pay one lump sum and we will divvy it as we please. Right. So it depends on how your bylaws and how your union is set up to what happens with every dollar. Now, I'm I'm super. Dialed on money and I have a gigantic spreadsheet of where every cent of every due dues goes. Um, But, you know, and our only political action is for local candidates. And typically we take a vote of the membership to decide who everybody wants to support. Uh, And it's fairly unanimous most of the time. We're a smaller local, though, so it's. You know, so I think that's part of it, too. As your local or your union gets larger, it's a lot harder to rein in that level of control. Right. But, you know, a portion of our dues as as firefighters go to the California Professional Firefighters, CPF, which is the state affiliate of the International Association of Firefighters, IFF. So we pay a per capita to CPF and we pay a per capita to IFF. So our state chapter and our national overall umbrella organization now, they'll get, like CPF and IFF, they get behind Diane Feinstein. They get behind the, the, the more liberal candidates. Oh, this is interesting because I'll be honest with you. When I left my little bout of research into this, I, I was under the impression, or somebody did a good job of convincing me on the internet, I was under the impression that, no, no, your dues go to, the let's say, the general things you were talking about, about the pantry and the spices. But if you want some of your money to go directly to support a political cause or campaign, you are giving essentially more additional dues that you're opting into. So, well, I just, yeah. I think when people talk about these locals and the stuff they want to opt out of, it's like AFL CIO, it's these giant labor organizations that. Yeah, their money goes into an abyss, and they have no clue where it's going. And the the organization's a juggernaut. I think when you're a particular local of a smaller organization, you just don't see this as much because my local of 30 members is not going to back a candidate that our whole group hasn't voted on because we're all going to hear about it, you know. And I think that's different. I think it's also incorrect to assume that every penny of your dues goes to supporting political action. There's a huge chunk of money that goes to stuff like legal right if you get into a contract impasse with your organization you're going to have to pull out an attorney and everyone knows that anytime you call an attorney just to ask them what day of the week it is it's two hundred dollars right so money like that goes to you know retirement funds funeral funds 
legal, uh, sending your members to conferences to learn how to negotiate, how to learn the labor laws, things like that. I, I also want to say it's not like the employer is always so rosy, especially on the on the public side. You know, so I, I get from the conservative side, the union part. I also get that, though, that uh, a corporation or the municipality isn't always the good guy. And you do need to defend yourself or you might be getting taken advantage of. Well, I always felt that there was a big disconnect between what which public sectors you're talking about. Because we can we can totally divide uh, police and fire and go, yes, they actually do need um, different representation because they can never stop working. Whereas the teachers, they can go on strike. Right. Um, so public safety usually has a no strike clause. And most departments have non-binding arbitration. So you get in a real pickle because you can't strike. Obviously, that would be bad if police and fire went Right, exactly. Strike, right? Yeah. You just can't do that. If you don't agree on a contract and you go to impasse and then you sit down in arbitration, most contracts say it's non-binding arbitration. So regardless of what the arbitrator or the mediator decides, it doesn't matter. The city doesn't have to enforce it or the municipality. So there does need to be a little bit of representation. I do see the feedback loop of unions support candidates, support unions. I feel like, though, a lot of times you're up against the city or the city council or the board of soups. You might have one vote on that board, but you're not going to have them all. Like I, I think that's rare these days. But it's interesting because when I hear you say something like that, it makes even more sense hearing you explain it. And you're kind of making the case for why in these sorts of more local representation situations and unions, you're probably not going to see a big, I would imagine you wouldn't see a big drop off in people wanting to keep their dues going to the union, but it's back to the abyss examples where you don't have a clue where your money's going. You probably have a good idea when you see the headline of who just got a big check in Sacramento, who's running for X, Y, Z, well, it's all it's like I was saying is it's all in which public sector you're talking about. I mean, the teachers unions, they got great uh, contracts out there. Most of them can't even be fired. And if you want to fire them, it's this big drug out process to get them out of there. I think we all remember the uh, documentary Waiting for Superman yeah. where, where you can't fire anybody. It's just a joke. And they love that fact. They 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 love their retirement funds. They they love everything about the unions. Now you'll get a certain amount of people who will drop out because of the politics all by itself. But that's going to be a very small uh, amount of people for that particular union. But you throw it into like say uh, road construction crews. They're just different types of people, and maybe they don't want to be the same kind of deal. Well, and I. Look, I, I've been involved in a lot of contract negotiations. I've never been involved in one where you didn't have to fight tooth and nail for a raise. So you hear a lot of these, you know, they, the union gets the official elected, then the official gives them raises, and then it's a never-ending loop. Every union I've ever been a part of, uh, we want to raise. Oh, sorry, there's no money. Right? It goes back and forth. Like... That's always a standard answer. There's no money. There's no money. There's no money. We're poor. Okay, we haven't got a raise in four years. Uh, we're poor. And then it goes back and forth. You negotiate. You might go to arbitration. I've never had a, we want a $20 an hour raise. Cool, done. 
Never. It doesn't happen. Everyone says, oh, these guys make a ton of overtime or they make all this money because they get these people elected. Dude, find me those places because it's always a knuckle drag out fight to try to get a raise. It's a magic unicorn. Out of curiosity, does it, I mean, to play devil's advocate, does it ever go the other way? Is it, can they impose, obviously you don't request a decrease in pay, but, but do they ever decrease pay? Oh, totally. Okay. My department took a decrease because here's the thing. Every other employee can take a furlough. Fire can't. PD can't. Like they can't say take a day off. You, you can't. Somebody's got to work. <laughs> my house is on fire. Pass the bill. My department in particular, quite a, a couple of years ago, actually had to take a pay cut because we couldn't take days off. We couldn't be furloughed. So the, that was an insulting thing. And because our payroll system so antiquated, those people still have that line item on their check as a reminder of, hey, you had money taken out on your pay stub because like, you didn't even get a day off in lieu of pay. I mean, at least you'd have a day off of your furloughed, but you still had to come to work. <laughs> so- I will tell you a big problem, though, I have coming out of this is the apparent, and you don't have to read between the lines very much, I don't think, but the apparent it's not that hard to see the protection that the state, the California government wants to give now, now that this ruling has come down, that the California government wants to give the, especially the larger unions that are in the state. Apparently there is an assembly bill 292970. And it's essentially, it would prohibit government agencies from publicly disclosing information about new employee orientations. Give me a break. I mean, obviously they, they, they tout, that the reason for that is, you know, we don't want violence. We don't want. Essentially, they don't no. want somebody on the other side passing out material as to why they shouldn't pay their dues now that they have an option. So once you start doing those sorts of things, it's just an overt protection on the on the part of the state. For, te- technically, right? The state is supposed to not. If they want to unionize, okay. If they don't, okay. What's what's that all about? Well, to me, it goes back to the whole thing of, yeah, okay, hey, yeah, look, John, you have an option. You can join the union or not. These are all the benefits that you get to enjoy as a union member. If you don't want to join the union, you don't get any of these benefits. That seems totally fair. And your wage is whatever the non-collective bargained wage is that the city has made with at-will employees. And if you have some kind of problem, you're not going to be represented. You're not going to get your arbitration paid for. You're not going to have a legal team. You're not... Your raises are going to come whenever you negotiated them with the employer. Like, great, yeah, give people well, the option. Well, but, it, but it all you s- can't have it both. Like, well, it all sounds like rainbows and butterflies when you say it like that, but history shows us that's not going to be the case because whenever a union went on strike for whatever reason and they brought in scab workers, this was this was a conflict of interest for two different people. Usually, the scabs made a quite a bit more in hourly pay just to cover the uh the work that was needed but of course they they weren't the the regulars and they, they didn't have the experience or what have you but they weren't paying the union dues and they didn't have that overhead cost that came alongside it right well, but that overhead cost is a burden until you find yourself sitting in front of a supervisor and facing disciplinary action and you don't know your rights you have nobody to speak up for you and then it's, hey, sorry, Bobby, we're going to let you go. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't do those things. 
Sorry, you're not will employ. Bye. Here's your final check. Hey, it happens to me all the time. Well, I know. Right? I, I get I fired get, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's... Today? Today. <laughs> I got rehired right away. Yeah, but I mean, that's the truth of it. Like, you can't have... You can't have it both ways. I think that's my frustration with it. I agree. You don't want to participate. Awesome. Your choice. But then you don't get the luxury items. Like no, Exactly. Where does I mean, that that's, exist that, anywhere? That's what we champion for all the time, right? Is, is you have to live with the ramifications of the decisions that you made. And this, this allows people the freedom, which is great, to make a certain decision now that they couldn't before. Okay, but there's ramifications to that. So I see your point. It's... it's it's fair. Yeah. I mean, that's all I'm saying. I have your choice, but you don't get it both ways. I mean, that seems kind of dumb because then why would anybody pay in? If I could get all the benefit, but save the money, why wouldn't I do that route? We talked about this, but again, if you could, if there was assurances that I was, I was getting that value and that value alone for the dues that I'm paying, Cool. But when it's the abyss, you know, money box that I'm getting, yes, I'm getting those benefits. Oh, and a whole bunch of other things that I don't like gets murkier. Right. Totally. I just don't see the value in it. But maybe it's because I'm not a union guy. That's exactly why. Exactly why. All right. Moving on. Weed pocalypse. California's weed black market ramps back up. Uh, thousands of manufacturers, growers, and retailers have lost their licenses amid tighter regulations on marijuana and more oversight from local authorities, some of which are too keen on the plant. The cannabis companies that still operate legally face a dizzying array of new taxes. We're a little late on this. It happened on the 1st, but essentially... Uh, they came down with a whole new slew of regulations that came by. And sorry if you're only learning about this now. You missed out. A lot of pot retailers had to liquidate their assets, as it were, and sell everything on the penny. Wait, did they have a fire sale? <laughs> they did, in fact. Uh, a lot of uh, growers were, and uh, I'm sorry, retailers were selling their uh, leftovers because they couldn't sell uh, pot that wasn't uh, regulated and stamped as verified as clean and gone through the process that they've set forth. So uh, a lot of uh, marijuana dispensaries uh, couldn't pass the test of potency. You know, we talked about the whole supply and demand thing right when it started, that there wasn't going to be a slew of money in this. And if you already have a dealer, why would you go suddenly pay an exorbitant amount for the same product. I, I just don't understand that part. Okay, great. Pot's legal. Everybody gets to open a shop. Supply and demand should bring the market down, but of course, big government gets involved. There's tons of taxes and regulations. You're coming into a market that's got an existing black market to it. This isn't like the black market developed after the fact. You were trying to like curtail it. Yeah. yeah I, you're trying to legitimize something that was already illegal. And I don't see why if I don't see why you would suddenly leave your trusted dealing source to go. Your only shot, it would strike me as having that happen in any sort of grand, efficient manner is removing as many regulations as possible from the process 
because at some point it'll just get more convenient to go buy it at Walgreens than, you know, ride your bike down some back alleys to the dealer, right? But the minute you start adding what they've done. Wait, so you're saying that there's not as many weed aficionados that I was led to believe and they could care less if it's organic or not? This, you mentioned the word organic. I personally don't know. Maybe you guys do. What's the, what are the current regulations for someone who's selling apples at the farmer's market? I mean, they obviously are incentivized to treat their, their trees, their field, whatever they're selling and growing, treat it well, do well, because they don't want to make you sick. They don't want the word to spread that you're going to have a problem. Well, they so buy your stuff. But is there, is there this level? You have the same issue, though, right? Because whether you, if you go to a farmer's market, you find out none of that stuff's much cheaper than the supermarket. It's usually more Fine. expensive. Okay. Right? Right. So then you got to say, okay, well, maybe I'm buying a better product, and you have to weigh, well, is it worth me spending more on the better product or can I go get, you know, apples at Vaughn's for $1.99 a pound or whatever it is? Same thing with like with any of the produce you find at the farmer's market or beef jerky or all the homemade stuff. It always costs more because they don't make it in bulk. I mean, we get apples year round. Apple season is not year round. They gas them so that they last all year and then they you can buy apples year round, right? We're used to now having access to things, especially in California, year round out of season, whether it's avocados, especially avocados, apples, citrus, we have it all year long. Uh, I think pot's the same deal. If you really want to know that, Hey, I'm getting a super good sourced mar- you know, marijuana and it follows some regulations. Okay. I'll, I'll spend more, but I, but do I need those regulations to make that source exist? Right? Isn't there going to be at some point their branding or marketing, the farmer's market apple cart? If they really, I mean, they're going to try and advertise to you and, and well, we're fresh, we're great. Isn't a pot dealer going to do the same thing? You got to go back though and look at what was the motivation for legalizing marijuana? Money. It yeah. was to make money. Right. And it's the only way that you've got the non believers believing and saying, Hey, look, John, I know you disagree with this dispensary in your neighborhood, but look, it's going to bring your locality a ton of money. And then Jane Smith goes, Okay, well, if it's going to help us solve the budget problem, I guess that's new money. And so what they do is they tack on a bunch of tax, and, and then it's also ends up being like price prohibitive, right? Because not everybody can partake in this. And it actually, I think, helps limit the supply by throwing a ton of regulation on it. This is going to get interesting because I read that I guess they're saying only half of the product coming through the canalysis labs in Santa Ana is good to go. So back to the supply demand. It it, it got even worse. Well, let me throw this statistic at you. The Bureau of Cannabis Control, we have another board, (laughs) it lists that it has 31 labs for testing, but only 19 are operational. Well, yeah, they're not getting any product coming in to test because if people know that, well, my stuff's not good and I've been growing it however and it's not going to pass, these labs require testing and volume of tests to do to stay alive, right? It's very interesting because, you know, we have uh, big tobacco, for example, and we're trying to get rid of big tobacco, but we're really building big weed or whatever you want to call it. And it's it's following the same... uh, the same steps that that created big tobacco 
overregulation. It forces smaller growers out. They can't compete with the big boys. And exactly what's happening with cannabis is that we're driving out many, many, many of the smaller uh, uh, proprietors, right? And they can't compete. So they're either forced to merge with each other and become big businesses or the big business just comes in and swoops and kills them all out. Right. And you've seen it with cigarettes too, is the, the fact that they've become just price prohibitive. We can't outlaw cigarettes. So what we're going to do is just make them so expensive that people won't buy them, but people with an addiction will buy them. I mean, in New York, the average cost of a pack of cigarettes is like twelve eighty five. And there's politicians on the record having said that very thing. That's their whole point. We're just going to keep raising the taxes till people stop buying them. Well, it's so interesting that you say that, you know, we can't outlaw cigarettes. But when it comes to California, we can obviously ban uh, plastic bags or plastic straws. The reason why they don't ban cigarettes is because of the taxes. They love it so much, but it's not curtailing any uh, smokers from continuing to smoke. That's happening all on their own. Well, it's like the plastic bags are illegal, but I can pay 10 cents and get one. Right? Like, I, it's <laughs> like in the, in the, in the produce section, the little roller things, right, that you can put all your right. produce in. Well, those are still around. You see people in the checkout lines with those instead now. Well, it's like cap and trade. You know, uh, emissions are bad for the environment, but hey, you can buy credits to have more emissions. Like, it's the same thing with the plastic bags. Uh, the plastic bags are illegal. We're banning them. But if you pay 10 cents, you get this super thick plastic bag. I, <laughs> I don't understand. They don't either. <laughs> That's don't the beauty. Either. Well, this is, this is bad for the, the small businessman. I mean, they're, they're really thinking that 90% of the companies are going to be out of business just because they can't meet up with the regulations. Yeah. This is the classic. We, we talk about them a lot on this podcast, but, this is the classic Friedman point. You can look back in history, and so often the monopolies that have existed have distinct roots in government involvement and interaction in them being there in the first place. Here's a classic one. Who do you think is going to be able to work with this, survive, pay these sorts of testing bills, make sure all there's – it's not the mom-and-pop, quote-unquote, uh, weed distributor. It's going to be whatever subsidiary of – of Philip Morris or you know, fill in the blank who has the wherewithal to pay all this stuff to keep above the line and make sure all their stuff's good with all these regulations. Well, and you're, you're also, you know, I think we're focusing kind of on the actual, the bud part of it, but the cannabis like extraction and the edibles and the process that goes into that, your like honey oil extraction and stuff takes a lot more equipment. It's a lot more dangerous. And your whole process for that from, you know, uh, getting signed off with inspectors and things like that is way more, you know, than just growing plants and selling bud. So I think we're just starting to see the ramifications of when government gets involved in business, right? When the motivation is purely from an economy standpoint on the government's side, right? The only reason why we let it be legal, we can say that, oh, it helps out cancer patients and everything else. But the real motivation was, hey, this is untapped revenue, and so now we're seeing what, what happens when something is just purely motivated by government economic. Speaking of the taxes of it, I came across a source that said, and maybe it was from the original article, but 
it kind of tried to step through, and, and this is what I read. I mean, who knows? This stuff's changing so fast. This oh, could be where'd wrong. you read that from? Um, I think it's actually, I think it was from the same article. The um, was it the ABC Seven, the, the the original article on um, this whole black market uh, phenomenon and them putting all the the weed on discount before it started. Uh, local taxes, they said, can be as high as twenty percent of gross receipts. That comes on top of fifteen percent state excise tax. Plus a ten and a quarter percent sales tax, and I guess there's some cultivation state tax of nine twenty five an ounce. So what? I mean, you're you're upwards wow. of, I don't know, forty percent, thirty percent. Which is like okay. gas. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at all the tax. If you look at the breakdown in a gallon of gas, that's basically what weed is becoming. But the funny thing is, that's much more of an uh, inelastic demand. For gas, I mean, over time it will change, but they know that they can just keep levying taxation on the gasoline, and our driving habits will change very slowly because of that. Well, that's a bunch of bull because I just got to keep going because I don't have any infrastructure otherwise to uh, do what I got to do on my normal day to day drive. It's I mean, just like cigarettes. Uh, I like cigarettes or I like cigars, and I'm going to continue using and not change my habits and I have to pay more for it. I mean, they're going to go broke doing it or that's right, it. That, that's that, it. Right. No, that's what I'm saying is, yeah. is they, they, they can keep, I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. They can keep lumping taxation on yeah, the gasoline. It's not, you're going to keep. Yeah. It's not about stopping somebody from doing whatever driving. they're doing. Right. They just want more money. And it's just, but when it comes to the gas tax, it's a poor tax. I mean, who has to pay more money for the taxes in general? The people who have to drive more often, it's usually people who live out in the suburbs away from the metropolises because they can't afford the high rent. So it's a poor tax. But it strikes me on this one, if they really wanted to maximize long-term revenue, wouldn't they have started this thing off as very little regulation sure. to get the maximum number? It's, I mean, all of us drive cars, so you we're already bought like in. Switching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get the buy-in first and then slowly raise the taxation. I mean, we're already bought into cars. We're, we're all driving cars. Right. So now they have us, and so the raising the taxes is going to have less of an impact. Whereas if you come out of the gate with this, and such a huge tax on the marijuana, you're, you're probably not going to get a lot of takers. Well, the, I think the problem, too, with when talking about the marijuana is that you've got all the localities then putting their tax on top of the already you know state tax. So you have your all the state fees and taxes and everything that comes with that. And then you go to open up a shop in your city because they just now legalized it, you know, but then they have an ordinance or whatever that says, Hey, you also got to pay us X amount of taxes because that's how that city justified legalizing it in their area. And before you know it, you've got a ton of local and state taxes piled onto whatever it is you got to do. Plus just the normal income tax, you know, the corporate tax, the LSC tax, whatever else, all the normal, just running a business stuff insurance, security systems. I, there's, it feels like there's so much overhead to uh, so much overhead to a business type that hasn't really seen what it can do yet, right? And it's got a giant competitor in the black market that is undermining everything. It is undercutting everything you do. It's like they're trying to drive the car around like it's a Ferrari, but it's a Yugo. But they're driving it like it's a Ferrari. You know, like they're already trying to to mold it, shape it as if it's this thing that can be molded 
and shape. Remember, they were expecting twenty billion in right. sales. Right. Yeah, right. They were they were expecting this thing to be huge and and have a whole bunch of uh, of sales tax derived from it. I think they were looking at like four billion a year. Right. And but again, nobody took into uh, nobody factored in that they're competing against a giant group of established people that don't pay anything. Right. I. You have, you have, again, I go back to the same, if I already have the trusted source that I get my weed from, the guy at the corner, why am I going to go pay 10 times as much because somebody has a storefront? Like, These are the same people, though, that thought that the ridership on the high-speed rail would be like 10 times the normal ridership well, of Amtrak here sure. on the West Coast. On, and on it? top of that, you still got to be legal federally. Right, and we yeah, talked and about, in a moment it can come in and they just shut you down just because exactly uh, your business your your business plan is extremely volatile because we still don't know if this is a state issue or a Fed issue or who's right or who's wrong, and then we talked about in a previous episode these people can't even use conventional banking. I got stacks of cash at home. Yeah, it's a giant cash game. They can't even go deposit that to go pay their bills anywhere with a Visa or a debit card, so they're stuck with a bunch of cash. And then the state wants to open a banking system for them. The whole thing was so half baked, <laughs> like what I did. Oh, oh yeah, I, I like that. Mm-hmm. That it never. Everybody had these like giant lofty ideas for it, and we're, we're finding that that's not quite true, you know. And apparently, um, in that same article I was referencing earlier, apparently they made reference to this is the same thing that happened in Oregon, and they're encouraged because while initially. The, uh, the number of people embracing and using marijuana dropped. Over time, it began to rise again and increased beyond its initial numbers. Even be- They're trying to make these comps to what's happened in other states, so they're still encouraged even though they see. This is, this is to me, a classic like business 101 issue of scaling at a disproportionate size or speed, right? Because whenever you have a business and you're starting out, you talk about, you know, scaling responsibly it takes a lot to really scale at the right size at the right time without kind of stretching yourself too thin and going out of business getting big for your britches yeah uh we keep comparing ourselves to like colorado and oregon california's way larger than those two states and hence we start out at a much larger scale right off the bat than those two states do doesn't that mean we're way smarter too mm, mm. not a direct correlation there uh so i think i think part of it is we're so large that it's hard to really find a sample that is representative of what california can do or what it can't do and we just have a bunch of idiots in sacramento running it on top of it that's a great point we're trying to draw parallels from other states where maybe there's a modicum of things to extract but not not the full example yeah Yeah, that's a good point well, I think we pretty much just addressed the fact that the government was looking uh, big eyes on the prize. Uh, you know, cash rules everything around me. Get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. They were really looking forward to getting a whole bunch of cash, and they just couldn't, uh, they couldn't help themselves. No, and I think we all know there's no such thing as a quick buck. At least nothing that lasts. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Where am I here? Next chapter. Uh, let's see. 
Oh yes. This is good, you guys, because we're uh, we're, we're diving into the magical land of California and magical pixie dust and all that kind of good stuff. So the court nixes a challenge to a rare California bullet stamping law. The California Supreme Court threw out a lawsuit that sought to block an unusual law requiring new models of semi-automatic handguns to stamp identifying information on bullet casings when shot uh, and fired to make it easier to solve crimes. The big problem is it doesn't exist, but the court said it doesn't matter. This, this whole this is story blows my mind. So they want them to do something like stamp a bullet as it leaves the chamber, as it leaves the barrel. And then the gun manufacturers say that's impossible. And the state still says, no, no, we want you to, well, we want you to strive for that. So we're going to make it a law. We're going to make you strive to invent that procedure. Am I the only one who, when I read this, here's what came to mind. Well, why don't they just say by 2022, I need to go to work in my flying car. And if I don't, I'm going to be arrested. Let, let me read like, to you. Well, okay, maybe that'll bring flying cars by 2022. At, at first, at, when I first started reading the article, I thought what they were talking about was when you bought bullets, the bullets are going to be pre-stamped. And then I started thinking like, well, that sucks because if someone stole your ammunition, you could get fingered for a crime. Then I re- kept reading and I realized it was they wanted your gun to have a unique identifier that would punch somewhere on the bullet. I think it was like in two spots on the bullet. Uh you know, as it left the gun and the yeah, manufacturer two spots, yeah. And the manufacturers were saying, well, the only way you could even kind of do this is if you put the stamp on the firing pin, but then there's no way to guarantee that the gun would That'll still happen. fire correctly mm-hmm. or that it would get imprinted correctly every time. And they said, yeah, no, no, we know about that, but maybe this law will help encourage you to invent what you need to invent. So let me let me read to you what the court said. And uh, the civil code is an interpretive canon for constructing statutes, not as a means for invalidating them. Impossibility can occasionally ex- excuse noncompliance with a statute, but it is such circumstances the ex- excusal of constituents on an interpretation of the statute in accordance with the legislature's intent not an invalidation of the statute. So says Lou of the court. Mr. Lou. Judge Lou. Total joke. It's, this is where I was going with when I said magical pixie dust. I mean, exactly. Uh, it, it, just because it, we think of it doesn't mean it happens. It's kind of like the, uh, the excuse for, you know, communism. Oh, sure. It'll work, but let's just keep trying it anyway. Uh, it's it's never going to happen. Here's a, this to me was really scary. Here's what Javier Becerra, the the California Attorney General, here's what he said after this thing came down. "Quote: Today's ruling confirms that California can create incentives for the gun industry to make products that serve the public's needs. If that isn't a statement by for somebody who doesn't feel that they have it within their total purview and power." To just manipulate and control whatever happens however they want, I don't know what does. Well, again, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say if you are a rule-breaking, illegal gun-owning person, 
you're not going to have your gun stamped. Right? Uh, oh, yeah, no, no. So so it it goes back to the same argument of, well, you know, all these things, uh, uh, let's put all these gun laws in place and uh, that'll prevent shootings and uh, gun safe zones because, you know, Chicago is clearly one of the safest places in the world uh, and that's analogous to it being one of the biggest gun-free zones in the world. Let's put all these procedures in place because it's going to make people safer. And unfortunately, the people that are out to commit crime don't care what the law is. Murder is already illegal, and that doesn't stop people from murdering. So what we're going to do is we're going to come up with a magical gun that stamps the ammo so that when the bullet leaves the, the, the barrel, uh, then we're going to be able to trace it back to your gun. But what if that gun was stolen? Now, now you're back in the same boat. Well, we don't know who fired the gun. Well, they'll come up with another bill. I mean, you know, I'm sure there'll be something to fix that. I guess I don't understand the point. Is the point just to tie the bullet to the gun? I would imagine so. I'd imagine so. Well, they say it. They say, yeah, to help solve a crime. Right, but the person who's committing the crime isn't going to have a registered firearm. It rarely happens. So I, Yeah. They're, not, they're typically not in compliance with the law. Or in the case of some of these school shootings, they took one of their parents' guns and went and committed the crime. And in, the, in that case, everyone knows who did it. There's no suspect at large. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I envision a bunch of gang members lining up to uh, to swap yeah, no, to swap the firing pin of their their illegal guns and, and making you know yeah the cops will just ignore that the guns are illegal and they'll put the new firing pin in so everyone will be well good. this the state continues to you know this is only a long line of funny laws that they've created over the years I mean last year they had uh, AB one thirteen which put the uh, the the bullet button on uh, on assault weapons. You remember you got to put your on your AR fifteen, but more specifically, so you got to for those of you who don't know, you got to push a certain button with a little key mechanism every time you want to reload the magazine. And this is supposed to stop uh, right mass well, the, shootings when they're happening. The whole point of the bullet button was that they were worried about having high capacity magazines. Which are also illegal. Which are also already illegal. Uh, you being able to have a bunch of magazines, so then you could, you know, you could take one out of the gun, put another one in, and then get a lot of rounds off. So what they did was, well, they made a law that said you can't have a removable magazine. Uh, it needs a tool to make it removable. You can't just take it out by hand. So someone invented the bullet button, which, in order to press the button you could use the tip of a bullet basically right you need to use a tool and the tip of a bullet fits in there and then it allows you to discharge the magazine from the lower lower receiver so what ends up happening is the bullet button is designed to stop mass shootings i guess but it doesn't and and a lot of these things are you know the whole you get in the weeds with the definition of assault weapons and how everything is just not used correctly and well, the vernacular I, is just slaughtered in the media. Half the people in the media think that we have fully automatic right. rifles that any of us can go by. Illegal. Right. Illegal in California. You know, it the bullet button doesn't save any more lives. Um all the various laws they come up with. It's kinda like we talked about with cigarettes and weed, right? Let's just try to make a gun so prohibitive that we will de facto you know, repeal 2A. We're just going to make it so hard to own a gun that 
then this will make society safer. So we can't just come out and say, hey, we're going to take away your Second Amendment right. We're just going to make it so incredibly difficult to own a gun that will you know, de facto make it prohibitive. And at the same time, it's not making anybody safer because it turns out the criminals aren't the ones that get the guns through legal means. Well, that's exactly the point. I mean, we got another assembly bill coming up right now. It's called AB 2382. It's uh, sponsored by Mike Gibson. And this one is to close the ghost gun loophole oh, yeah. by regulating parts and components that people bar that are barred from having a gun could use to assemble one. So you can go buy the barrel by itself or the grip or so on and so forth. And then you can go and build yourself a, a rifle of whatever right. design. These people truly are delusional. And they're delusional by thinking that they have the power within themselves to control and manipulate people away from doing evil and bad things. And that's right. just that's just insanity. Well, here's one that contradicts their previous ruling, which was uh, they have AB 2817, uh, which would allow suicidal people to temporarily give their guns to a friend. Whereas because right now you're not allowed to, you know, hand over your gun to a friend. And this this is more of the you know, little Timmy stole his parents' gun and went on a rampage kind of deal. But this pertains more to people who are at like a gun range and you go, Hey, I just bought this new Colt 45. You want to give it a try? You can't do that because it's illegal right now. So this law curtails that and says, okay, now you can uh, hand this over because you're suicidal and, and maybe that will stop you from, Shooting yourself. Well, as it stands now, if somebody says you, you have some kind of psych issue or you're involved in a domestic dispute, this, they automatically confiscate all your firearms. And then it's up to you to try to prove none of those things happened. That the only problem is it's kind of like the no-fly list. Like, anybody can get you put on it. And then it's damn near impossible to get off of it, whether everything's true or not, right? So... You get into a dispute, your wife or your significant other says, hey, he's got some guns and he scares me. And then they take them all away and then you got to defend yourself. And it could be a completely falsified report, but now you're trying to get your guns back from the state. And I'm using state as in the government, but I don't know. I'm going to put you on the no-fly list. You're going to enjoy it. Have yourself a nice rusty venture at the airport. No, thank you. That's the place to hang out, I've heard. The airport. Well, if you're feeling lonely, go to the TSA. They'll uh, they'll hook you up with a massage. And I just was on a trip, and they dropped my laptop. Mm. From I mean, we're talking competence at the highest level. Yeah, it was great. I just I just this is a major tangent, but uh, I was flying in from Chicago earlier in the week, and we were getting ready to land at LAX, and everything was great. We touched down, and then you hear everything power back up, and the pilot does a touch and go and takes back off. And uh, he starts telling us uh, as we're out over the Pacific, he says, uh, yeah, the tower cleared us to land, uh, but there was a plane still on the runway. No problem. Man. Just just go over it. Good to go. It's leapfrog. Just leapfrog right over it. Okay. And with that, I think it's time for the James Woods Tweet of the Week. <laughs> That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The sound effect is still with us. You had one mission, and I did not complete that mission. 
Lord have mercy. Well, what I did do is found a pretty hilarious James Woods tweet. All right, lay it on us, brother. So the newly beloved Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? The recently elected uh, Democrat in New York. Socialist? Uh, some would say. She would say. <laughs> she would <even> say. <laughs> um, so she, she tweets, wondering, how many other House Democrats have a degree in economics like I do? Trying to find who out here is going to be in the genie coefficient appreciation squad. So she, you know, she's throwing some oh some serious econ verbiage at us here. James Woods tweets back. Is that how you got the bartending job at age 28? Were you better at counting swizzle sticks? <laughs> James Woods, everybody. I was waiting for the rim shot. Oh, yeah. Maybe that would have made that one sound better. Or not. Well, thanks for joining us. Before before we go, yeah. I did want to mention one thing. My, I have a cousin up in the state of Washington. He and his buddy Will they do a pretty interesting podcast too. It's called the Kinetic Chaos Podcast, and they talk about like we do. They talk about some local politics. They uh, they also actually interview some local politicians running for office. So it's kind of interesting. Very cool. They also uh, do some sports, some uh, some federal topics. So. If any of our listeners out there get a chance, they should check out the Kinetic Chaos podcast. They put their episodes up on YouTube, iTunes. You should be able to find them. Awesome. Good plug. Good show. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us. New episodes available every Wednesday at 8 a.m. on the Google Podcast Store and uh, Apple iTunes. Thanks, everybody. Burn it all down.